John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Father, you are here with us today. You are with us always, but I've come to believe that, that your presence meets us in special ways when your church gathers. And I pray that today as we look at this text and, and other realities about the divinity of Jesus Christ, I, I just ask that your, your spirit would help our hearts to be present to what you're saying to us. God, I just pray right now that the craziness of the holidays and the season that we're in and the rushness of it would just calm and quiet right now. And that we would be present to hear from you what you would have us to hear today. Father, would you plant your word in our hearts? And would you cause it to be fruitful, to, to yield 30, 50, even 100 fold from what is planted? By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I want to thank you guys for being here today. Apparently, there was some sort of what was it, a Globe Super Bowl um, where the United States apparently won, right? Did I get that right? No? Okay, okay. Uh, I've tried to get into soccer, guys. I've tried really hard, uh, but I just can't do it. But I'm happy for you. I'm happy to share your joy. Uh, and also just want to thank you guys who were able to make it to our Christmas party last night. It was really fun. We had about 45 people packed into our little office, uh, and it was a really, really good time. Um, it's good to celebrate things like that. Uh, and to start off uh, on that theme, I actually want to talk to you about St. Nicholas. Uh, not the St. Nicholas that comes to your mind, but the St. Nicholas that lived uh, in the 4th century. So if you don't know, there is a real St. Nicholas uh, who lived in the 4th century who was the Bishop of Mira. Uh, and St. Nicholas was famous for a lot of things. One of the things he was famous for was providing gifts to impoverished children. Hint, 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 if you know where that leads. Uh, and St. Nicholas was a great saint, uh, and he lived in the 300s, and that was a really interesting time to be a bishop in the church, because in the 4th century, there was a lot of debate about different areas of theology. The, the church was, was trying to really nail down from the scriptures what it is that Christians believe, what the church should hold to. And, and one of the main things that they had to uh, really, in some ways, argue about and debate about was the divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so in 325, uh, Constantine called all the bishops together for what's called the Council of Nicaea. Uh, and at the Council of Nicaea, a lot of things were debated, but mainly they were trying to land on what is the divinity of Christ. Is this something that we see, see from Scripture, or is it not? Uh, and one of the main opponents of the, the divinity of Christ was a bishop by the name of Arius from Egypt. Uh, and Arius uh, had, a, had great reverence for the monotheistic nature of Christianity. And because of that, he wanted to make sure that Jesus actually wasn't fully God because he had a hard time reconcil reconciling monotheism with the deity of Jesus. And so at the Council of Nicaea, he uh, had his time and he was there to argue his position, which thankfully the church outright rejected, but he had his time. He had his time to, to put forward his theology on why he thought Jesus wasn't fully divine. Uh, and St. Nicholas was in attendance as a bishop. 
And there came a moment where Arius was waxing eloquently about why he thought Jesus wasn't fully divine, and St. Nicholas had had enough. Uh, He thought that Arius was attacking something that was essential to the church. And so St. Nicholas gets up from his chair, walks across the room, and open hand slaps Arius in the face. (laughs) That's a true story. And an open hand slap too, not even a punch. That, that's worse, okay? If you're going to hit me, I want you to punch me in the jaw, but don't shame me with an open hand slap, right? That just feels so much more demeaning. And so St. Nicholas had had, had enough. He was, he was tired of Arius. And, and I love that story because it, it shows that if St. Nicholas, who is this man that we have patterned after, or who we have patterned the old jolly St. Nick after, if, it, if the divinity of Christ was important enough to get him up out of his seat in front of all the other bishops and open hand slap a heretic, that should tell us that it's probably pretty important, right? We're, we're in a series right now called Advent Lessons, and, and throughout these four weeks of Advent, we've been re-examining some of the central pieces of the coming of Christ. We, we want to celebrate Christmas well and in a distinctly Christian way, not just a sentimentalized or consumeristic Christmas way. And, and to do that, to really celebrate this season distinctly in a Christian way, we have to understand the meaning and the depth of some of these central pieces of the coming of Christ. And, and today, the, the central piece that we'll explore is the divinity of Jesus, Now, at risk of downplaying what's already been said in this series, this lesson of the divinity of Jesus Christ is arguably the most important. (laughs) Everything we've covered for the last three weeks, we need all of it, but none of them really mean anything at all if Jesus isn't actually God. The, The whole message of Advent is that God has come down. That God has come down to the earth, that he has descended to the earth in order to accomplish for us a salvation and freedom and life that we can't accomplish for ourselves. The whole message of Advent is intervention. The central message of the gospel is about human inability, that we need something from the outside to come in and rescue us, that we have no hope of saving ourselves. And friends, that's why it's critical that the message of Advent not end with just another good guy who's trying to make the world a better place. We need intervention from the outside. In fact, Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, I'm going to quote him a lot just so I can say his name, um, he he says this, "The, the solution to the riddle of life in space and time lies outside of space and time. The the solution to our riddle of life in this world and in this life, it has to come from the outside. And and I think we know that and recognize that. As human beings, we need intervention. We need someone to rescue us because we can't seem to get it together, right? I mean, we're about to turn into a new year, which means you're going to have New Year's resolutions, which means you're going to fail at February. I love you. I trust you. I believe in you, but you're going to fail, right? We know our own inability. We know that we can't make it. We need something from the outside. Our message today as Christians is that this is exactly what has happened, that the God who exists outside of space and time who indeed even created those foundational realities, has come into space and time 
in order to be our Savior. The divinity of Jesus Christ is critical to the Christian faith. And so for today, for this last Advent lesson, I want to look at the divinity of Jesus. And and what I want to do uh, is the same of what we've been doing throughout the series. First, we'll kind of look at the topic itself. We'll do some handling of the divinity of Jesus by looking at this text and some others. And and then after that, I want to talk about why it actually matters. And, And just for courtesy's sake, I just want to tell you, today's sermon has two parts. First, it's going to deal with your brain. And second, it's going to deal with your real life. And so for the next... I don't know, five, 10 minutes. Will you just engage your brain with me? You ready? All right, everybody take a deep breath, get some oxygen to that brain. There we go. Let's dive in. Our text today is just a few verses from the beginning of the Gospel of John, but it is quite the intro. And it's an intro that matches the overall goal of the book. So so this biography of Jesus is meant to do something very specific. The writer, the Apostle John, says at the end of his gospel, in chapter 20, he says this, and this is the whole purpose of of why he wrote this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, everything else that's been written, has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. So John tells us at the very end that the overall purpose of his biography of Jesus is to demonstrate that Jesus is the the divine son of God so that we may have life. And toward that eventual purpose and end, John writes these first few verses as an intro. And again, what an intro it is. What an intro it is. John calls us back in these verses to the very beginning of everything. His in the beginning is meant to draw our minds back to Genesis 1. And even there, from his language, it shows that the word, who is Jesus Christ, well, he existed before the beginning. It's not that in the beginning the word came about. No, it's that in the beginning the word was already there. This divine son of God preexisted everything that is created. He is eternal. Listen, when when you have to reach back into eternity in order to start off someone's biography, you know that you're probably dealing with someone who's more than just a human being, right? We've all told our stories. Many of us have told our testimonies before about how our life has, what our life has held and how God has given us faith in Christ. But none of us start where John starts with Jesus, right? Like if you're in community group and someone is telling their testimony and they started off saying, in the beginning, you better buckle up, right? It's going to be a long story. None of us do that. We start at our own moment of birth. And yet for Jesus, John doesn't start there. His start, his biography starts by reaching far back beyond just the human birth of Jesus and reaches back into eternity. That's, that's wonderful enough. But, but as John continues on, He pens what is one of the most amazing sentences in the Bible. Friends, in this one sentence of verse 1, the Apostle John pulls together a number of threads concerning Jesus Christ and actually addresses one of the the lingering questions of his day. Let let me explain a little bit. So, So John, when he's writing this, he's writing this in Greek, and he uses a specific little word for word in this text. 
So he says that in the beginning was the word. Well, the word for that word is logos. Can you say that with me? Logos. That was not loud. Logos. Logos. He, he uses that in his introduction to Jesus. Now, his neighbors in the Roman world were, were very seeped in Greek philosophy and thought. And one of the main tenets of Greek philosophy is the existence of what they called a generative principle of the universe. A generative principle of the universe. The most prominent Greek thinkers, especially the Stoics at this time, believed that there was some unnamed, some impersonal principle of the universe that was holding it all together. And that was at the same time generating it all. They, they believed that there was something behind the universe that was holding the created order together and was also allowing it to continue to go on. And the word they used for this generative principle at the center of everything is logos. And so John here, at the beginning of his gospel, friends, he's taking that unnamed, impersonal principle of the universe and actually giving it a name. He says that Jesus Christ, this man from Nazareth, well, he actually is the generative principle of the universe. John says that in this man, Jesus Christ, was full divinity, and that in this man, Jesus Christ, was the reason why everything holds together and why everything continues to be. For the Apostle John, the divinity of Jesus Christ is explained by showing that Jesus is the very source of everything that is created and the very source of why it all stays here. That's how John starts off his biography of Jesus. And the divinity of Jesus Christ is also painted all across the rest of the New Testament as well. In the New Testament, we see the divinity of Jesus unmistakably. I mean, there's no way to sincerely let the New Testament be read to us and then come away denying that Jesus is the Son of God. It's painted all across the New Testament. Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says this in verses 15 through 17. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Paul's summation of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus, as a son of God, was the avenue through which all things were created and the reason for why they exist. He is both the means and the end. Creation came into existence because of Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And then he even says there, connected to the generative principle of the universe, he says creation stays in existence right now because this person, Jesus Christ, is holding it all together. Or in Hebrews 1.3, the author says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God gone public. That's who this man from Nazareth is. That in Jesus Christ, the glory of God is, is seen in its sharpest and clearest picture and Jesus also tells the truth about God. He says that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Everything you want to know about God and what he is like can be seen through Jesus. 
We know God because we know Jesus. God is as Jesus does. That's a deep statement of the divinity of Christ. And so throughout the New Testament, we see the substance of the divinity of Jesus unmistakably. But also throughout the New Testament, we don't just see the substance of his divinity. We also see the context of his divinity. The divinity of Jesus is shown as being in the context of relationship with God the Father. And so Jesus in John 10, uh, he says that he and the Father are one. He and the Father are one. And he says that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, which provides for us the context of his divinity related to God the Father. The divinity of Jesus is spoken of in terms of his unique relationship to the Father. In fact, even in the Gospel of John here, Jesus uses the term, my Father, 44 times. The the closest uh, to the amount of that usage for this term is in Matthew, where it's used 17 times. And so, friends, what I'm trying to say is that the divinity of Jesus cannot be rejected when we take the New Testament sincerely. But, But even for those of you who are not Christians today, you don't just need the New Testament to see the divinity of Christ. You can also look at history. I mean, we can, we can look at history and, and in many ways deduce that Jesus was more than just a mere human being. Can you consider with me that this impoverished, itinerant teacher traveled all over the Middle East teaching these strange things and that that person has actually become the central figure in history? I mean, it's really inarguable that Jesus is the most influential person in history. And all of his influence is due to the fact that he was really able to convince reasonable people that he was God in the flesh. It wasn't just his message of love and of sacrifice, but the core reason why he was able to get people to follow him and even die for him is because he was able to convince others that he was God in the flesh. I mean, he convinced his brother, James. Can you believe that? His brother, James, was willing to be thrown off of the temple roof, have his legs broken underneath him and his skull crushed in, all for the sake of holding on to the truth and the reality that his brother was God in the flesh. (laughs) I have a brother. I know that man well. He could never convince me that he is God in the flesh. But Jesus was able to do that with James, even though earlier in the Gospels, James is super skeptical. All that to show that this man was more than just a mere human being. And friends, in in many ways, it, it comes down to this. We have to decide whether we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. And if we don't believe that he is, we must reject everything he teaches. Listen to this from C.S. Lewis. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being just a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. Indeed, he did not intend to. We either bow down to Jesus as God or we reject him outright. But let there be no middle ground. Jesus himself did not allow for that. Now, Jesus is the divine son of God. Great. But the question that's always nagging for me is this. So what? Like, why does it, why does it really matter? I mean, is the divinity of Jesus just some ethereal idea that we must accept in order to be a Christian? It's just like reading Greek philosophy. We don't really understand it, but we know some people do, and so we just kind of believe it, right? It's just this ethereal thing out in the universe. Or does the divinity of Jesus actually matter? Does it actually change our real life? Friends, it it does. In each of these Advent lessons, I've been wanting to show you why it actually matters. And, and last week, we, we talked about the humanity of Jesus, and in many ways, the conclusion for why that mattered, it really had a lot to do with us, that the humanity of Christ gives hope to the human experience, and in many ways, changes the way we view what it means to be human. But friends, the, the deepening effect of the divinity of Christ has much more to do with how we approach him. And so the reason it matters for our real life is because the divinity of Christ, it changes how we come to him. It changes what we come to him for. It changes and influences and deepens what we hope from him and even ultimately how we revolve our whole lives around him. And so to close, I I just want to pick out a few ways that we should respond to the divinity of Christ. You can turn your brains off or at least turn it down to 20. (laughs) I'm just going to speak to your heart here, okay? Here's why it matters that Jesus is divine. Here's why it matters for your real life. First, if Jesus is fully divine, friends, we should be following his wisdom for our real life. If Jesus is God in the flesh, we should listen to what he has to say. Now, that Lewis quote that I just read to you, it explicitly told you not to treat Jesus as if he's just some moral teacher. Jesus has to be more than that. And yet, because he is more than that, as the divine son of God, it also means he can't be less than our teacher. Indeed, Jesus came to be our savior and our teacher. His original followers were called disciples, and in the first century, to be a disciple was to be someone who followed the teachings on the way of life of some rabbi. Jesus took these disciples, these 12, and indeed even uh, even takes us today, into his way of life. He calls us into experiencing his life, and not just the eternal life that we think of, Friends, today, Jesus wants you to take on his teachings in order that you would find real life. And that's because there's no way to take from Jesus the life he offers without also taking on the lifestyle of Jesus that he teaches. I mean, Paul says this in Colossians 2. He says that within Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
What that means is that Jesus, as the divine son of God, he has insight into how life works in a complicated, messy, fallen world. But part of what he seeks to do in the gospels is take people into his way and teach them his version of the good life. Now, the good life he teaches is remarkably contrary to what we naturally think, but the fact remains is that Jesus, in his wisdom, calls you into a way of life. And friends, his way of life is brilliantly infused with divine wisdom. Let me ask it this way. If Jesus is the divine son of God, does that mean he's smart? I mean, think about it this way. If, if you were to give five words to describe Jesus Christ, you might say loving, generous, kind, humble, influential, maybe even polarizing. Would you say brilliant? Would you say that Jesus is brilliant? Probably not for many of us would that come to mind. But again, if he is fully divine, how could he not be brilliant about life? Listen to this from Dallas Willard. In our culture, and among Christians as well, Jesus Christ is automatically disassociated from brilliance or intellectual capacity. Not one in a thousand will spontaneously think of him in conjunction with the words such as well-informed, brilliant, or smart. Far too often, he is regarded as hardly conscious. He, he is taken as a mere icon, a, a wraith-like semblance of a man living on the margins of the real life where you and I must dwell. He is perhaps fit for the role of sacrificial lamb or alienated social critic, but little more. But can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what Christians take him to be in other respects? and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived, bringing us the best information on the most important subjects. If Jesus is divine, you should listen to him because he has the best information on how life really works. If he is divine, he has the best information on the most important subjects of life, love, sacrifice, relationships, money, suffering, anxiety, even death itself. Jesus should be listened to. <laughs> the divinity of Jesus means he is brilliant, and we follow him accordingly. But not only is he brilliant, he is also powerful. As not being just a mere human being, he possesses a power that we do not have. We not only follow his teachings, but the way that this comes into our real life is that we trust his power, and mainly his power for our salvation and our deliverance from evil. One, one of my favorite sections of the Gospels is in Mark 3, where Jesus clearly explains why he came into the world. He says in Mark 3.27 that he has come to bind the evil one, which he calls the strong man. And he says that in binding this evil one, he will plunder the house and take all of the strong man's goods. And what Jesus is saying there is that he has come to exert his divine power over evil and plunder the goods. 
Jesus, as the divine son of God, has come to deliver us from evil and all of its consequences. And so one of the reactions we should have to to the divinity of Jesus is to trust his power to do just that. Listen, Christmas is often that kitschy time of year where we sing songs about snow and what we want for Christmas, which is all well and good. I will sing those loudly right alongside you. But Christmas is also and mainly the time in which we celebrate that God has come down in Jesus Christ in order to mount a campaign of sabotage and conquering against evil. Where God exerts his divine power against what is wrong in the world. Christmas is that time in which we celebrate and renew our trust in the power of the divine son of God. The power of Jesus over sin. That original contagion that has infected the human line for millennia, it has met more than its match in the cross of Christ. Defeated. The power of Jesus over the evil systems of this world that push people away from God. Listen, the the structures of secularism behind which our neighbors are held in captivity, friends, they are not intimidating to me. When I look out our, our city, I am not intimidated by the secularism in it. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Because the power of Christ, our city and our culture can mount its greatest efforts to reject and deride the Son of God. But when he wants to plunder the evil one, he's going to take with him what he wants. He's going to take out men and women who have been in bondage to darkness. When I look at our city and I have no cynicism or hopelessness, I look at our city and the reason why I'm filled with hope is because of Christ. The reason why I'm looking at 2023 and believing for fruitfulness in the mission of our church is because of the power of Jesus Christ to overcome the darkness. I could go on and on with the power of Jesus over addiction. Listen, the reason we partner with UGM is not just because it's a good thing to give material means of survival to our homeless neighbors. That's a big reason why, but the other reason why is because alongside UGM, we believe that in the name of Jesus Christ, addiction can be broken. The power of Jesus Christ. The divinity of the Son of God, it means that we should be trusting him for his power. If Jesus is divine, as the scriptures lay out, what, could, what power could he not exert on our life? I mean, friend, do you have a need? Are you carrying over from 2022 and into 2023 some great need in your life? Some area where you need Jesus Christ to break through? If he's divine, you have every reason to trust his power to do just that. Not only that, Not only do we follow him for his wisdom and not only do we trust him for his power, but also we center him in the middle of our lives. If Jesus Christ is the divine son of God, it makes sense that our worship would be reserved for him. And friends, can I tell you, Advent, this whole Christmas season is a great time to ask the question of what's crowding out your heart. Is there room for Jesus Christ in your heart, or is there not? Is it like that little inn in which he was originally rejected? Are there all kinds of things in your heart that are crowding out the worship of Jesus Christ? If he's divine, you can't just have him as an accessory to your life. 
He can't just be on the eccentric edges. He can't be on the fringes. If Jesus is divine, he is moved to the center. And friends, how much we need that. How much we need Jesus at the center, the right person to worship at the center. Listen to this from Edmund Clowney. He says, worship is a meeting in the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are, in turn, alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. There is no center, so there is no circumference. We need worship so that our lives are not lived eccentrically on the fringes. We need the right person to be there at the center that we can worship. And if Jesus is fully divine, he owns that place, friend. Or at least he should. Jesus is the divine son of God. God has come down to the earth to rescue us. I mean, to reread what I said from Ludwig, the solution to the riddle of life in space and time lies outside space and time. And this time of year is the time in which we celebrate that God has done just that. He has come to, to rescue us. And his rescue can calm all of our fears going into this, into this next year. Around this time of year, there's a lot of Christmas movies being played, one of my favorite things. And, and one of my favorites is a classic, The Charlie Brown Christmas. And there's a character there named Linus. And if, if you pay attention to the world of Charlie Brown, you see that Linus, well, he's a child who's got some great insecurities and, and fears. He, he carries with, around with him at all times <clears throat> a security blanket. And that little blue blanket goes everywhere with him. It's his little comfort. But in the, in the Charlie Brown Christmas, there comes a time where the nativity scene is being told. And Linus stands up to tell the story of the shepherds and the angels in the Gospel of Luke. And Linus is, is reciting this story and something really wonderful and moving happens when he gets to the message of the angels. He, he recites what the angels say, where they say, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as Linus says that last part, who is Christ the Lord, he holds up his blanket and drops it. He, he drops this, this source of comfort that he has carried with him all along. This thing that he has used to nurse his fears and his insecurities is no longer necessary at the message of the angels. That God has come down. Unto us is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Friends, this, this Christmas season, as we close this last Sunday of the year, 
What false sources of comfort do you need to let go of because of the message of Advent? Because the message is that God has come down in Jesus Christ. You can go to Jesus for wisdom and should. You should trust his power and you should worship him at the center of your life. But one of the most accessible things you can do today is identify those little things you're holding on to and see how the message that God has come down to save us means that all these little comforts that in the end don't really work, they're just messy blue blankets. We can trust Jesus and not fear. What a great message of Advent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, oh God, you you did not outsource our salvation because there was no one to outsource it to. You yourself had to come down, oh God, to take on flesh to live a life that we could never have lived because of our sinful nature and to die a death that was by every standard ours to die. No one could do that but you. And so we thank you, Jesus, for your humility that though you have for all eternity existed in bliss and in joy without any need you still chose to come down and save us. And, and I pray that, that your divinity of oh Jesus would, would move our hearts and would spread out into our real lives, that it would not just be this ethereal principle that we check the box on, but it would actually influence how we come to you, how we approach you, that we would seek your wisdom for our real life. We would seek your power for the problems in our real life. And that we would bring our worship to you. Have you at the center so that our lives might be, might be stable rather than alarmed by specters or soothed by placebos. We would, we would have real hope. So God, give us, give us comfort in this season. We thank you for what the season preaches to us that though we could not save ourselves, you willingly came down to save us. God, give our hearts wonder at that in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.